out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are, if you say so, Jim. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling episode. This week, my special guest is going to be the turn of Mark Kramer, who I spoke to quite recently, he says. I think it was several months ago. Um, he of uh, Shimmy Disc fame and also was in various bands, including Bongwater Plus, uh, has produced lots of people's work, including Galaxy 500 and also Low, Will Oldham, Daniel Johnson, and much, much more. So I've got that interview, but to get the party on the road, I think. That's the general term. This is a, uh, a track that he's done very recently. Yeah, I think it's a Neil Diamond uh, tune titled Solitary Man. And then the interview. I know, the excitement is building. Anyway, turn up your stereos. This could just change your life. Don't know that I will, but until the light can find 
with the track titled Solitary Man that was written by Neil Diamond and that's, uh, that's from an album called The Brill, the Brill Building Book 2. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is The C86 Show and this week's special guest is going to be Mark Kramer, who I spoke to. Um, this is the interview. This is where I'd been talking about the first time I'd heard his work, which was obviously on The John Peel Show. We're based in the UK and... Um, him playing sort of various tracks by Bongwater and also a Bongwater session. And um, quite recently I'd been doing an interview with a member, Damon, from Galaxy 500. So I thought I must try and get an interview with Mark. And this is it. And this was Mark's reply when I had talked about those various bits and pieces and how I'd first come across Shimmy Disc and his work. And this was his answer. Mark, take it away. Yeah, I can't seem to stop. Yes. So could you just give us a little bit of a background? I mean, I know you've only got 15 minutes, but just the sort of the way, you know, I suppose your life and career develop, because obviously most people I've done, you know, done interviews with last about, I don't know, five years in music and then they get sort of like chewed up and spat out. But you've you've sort of done huge amounts of stuff. Well, most of the stuff that I did was directly related to the fact that I had a, a 16 track studio on 34th Street, and then I moved it to Tribeca. Uh, that started in 85 and went on to 89, uh, no, uh, 91. And then in uh, late 91, I, whoops, you still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. Oh, ah, okay. Sorry, uh, my phone's beeping. Um, and then in 1991, I uh, sold Noise New York and uh, 
bought a house in uh, suburban New Jersey, actually about 10 miles uh, north of the George Washington Bridge with a state-of-the-art 24-track studio. And that's when the shit really started to sound good, in my opinion anyway. That had a 24-track 2-inch MCI machine, and I had a Trident mixing board. So I had that beautiful, warm British sound that I've been wanting all my life. And uh, records by uh, records I did with, oh gosh... I'm gonna, uh, Will Oldham and Low, all of the Low records I made were there, and a bunch of other stuff, you know. But I, I just sort of went on doing what I'd always been doing, which was producing and recording things usually that nobody was really interested in recording or putting out, you know. So that's how I kept going by keeping things fresh and by not accepting a lot of major label jobs. In fact, I only had a few of them before I swore them off completely. Yes. Uh, one, and one was with King Missile, who I had on Shimmy Disc for years, and then they signed to Atlantic. And I had my fill of that kind of stuff. You know, when, when you have a, a label executive who's asking you to send rough mixes like the day you record the first version of the song, uh, that, you know, this this is sort of like a Hollywood studio asking to see rushes on the first day of shooting you know this that's not the way i work and it's not the way i would want to have an artist recording you know who what kind of an artist you know can can a painter paint with the gallery owner standing behind him you know and making comments on his brush strokes you can't do that kind of thing so i think one of the reasons i've lasted so long is because i never really got in bed with the big power players you know and the only thing that I've really done that everybody has heard is the Pulp Fiction song by Urge Overkill, you know? Mm. And that sort of totally ruined my career as a as a major label record producer anyway, because um, it was funny. I went to a couple of meetings after that, and I was turned down for some gigs because people said I was a retro producer. And that was all because of the Pulp Fiction song. One guy who ran a label said, look, I love what you do, but that song sounds like it was recorded in 1966. And I said, yes, that was the point. That was exactly what I was trying to do. And he said, well, yes, this is 1993, though, and we're looking for the next Nirvana. So, you know, I think a lot of the people who get chewed up and spit out, like like you uh, suggested there, was because they tried to play the game and walk the walk and talk the talk. And I was never... It's not that I wasn't good at it. I I, I wasn't interested in it. Yes, because so. it, it sounds quite similar. And some of your you know the, your attitude sounds quite similar to Steve Albini, who was then obviously Big Black and then did various other sort of combos and bands, and also did a lot of producing as well. And yeah, had a sort of quite a strong sort of uncompromising. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do, and and worry about the music and the art and everything else is just going to have to sort of shove it really. And he's still doing it too. He's still doing it. There's a lesson there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so obviously being a producer is one thing, but then being, but obviously you had a moment with being in a band with Bongwater. I mean, how did that sort of develop and and sort of come about? Well, with with your permission, I, I won't. I don't want to get too deeply into it because it usually resonates for a few days when I do, and it ended very badly with five years of lawsuits that shut down Shimmy Disc and my recording studio in order to to pay for the lawyers. You know, we came to a settlement on it that didn't uh, bring any uh, money to either side, but the lawyers' fees forced me to sell everything. So it's not a really very happy time for me. I'd rather 
talk about things I've done since. And, th- you know, I don't want to direct this interview. I want you to be able to ask the questions you want to ask. But if you really want to talk about bong water, I'm, I'm going to have to beg off. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's absolutely fine. It was just that obviously that was one of the moments that obviously over here we, we sort of came across bong water. And then obviously John Peel played a lot of stuff that was on Shimmy Dis record. So obviously that's how we sort of um, started to sort of you know, people like me became very curious and sort of wanted to find out who the people were behind these kind of acts and um, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, John, John also loved a band I had called Bald with Bomb, uh, Don Fleming. That was, uh, uh, John was really into that group. And I, I think he was a fan of those solo records I made after Bongwater broke up too. Yes. Those, those sound pretty good, I think, still in retrospect. I'm not embarrassed by any of that stuff the way I'm the way I am about <laughs> some other silliness that I did and those half Japanese records and my gosh so much stuff but this you know a lot of the stuff I'm happiest with is things that I've done just in the last few years I've finally figured out how to make digital recording sound analog and really happy with a lot of that work that very few people are hearing. And I, I, I think I sent you, did I send you the history of crying? Jad you did. And I had a play and it's fantastic. So yeah, it's really beautiful, isn't it? It is it. very good actually. And uh, yeah. it's just always really nice to sort of hear that people are still doing stuff. And obviously, you know, I was talking to, uh, you know, Damon from Galaxy 500 and he was talking about, you know, you know, the problems that they had in a band and the way that sort of folded and then, he got together, well, he was still together with Naomi, so they created their own band. And it was kind of people like you who sort of helped them navigate for a bit after that experience. Even more than navigation, I think. I worked on them for a year just to come into the studio. They had sworn off music completely, you know. It was it was worse than a divorce for them when uh, Dean quit the band. Well, this is a part of history. You don't need me to confirm that. But they really just wanted to run their publishing company and retire from music completely. And I knew that they had songs that they had written. And they, they just, you know, it was like someone... It's like a, a man getting a divorce and saying, not only will I never get married again, I'll never love again. And that's ridiculous. So yeah. I just basically hammered them and and harped on them for almost a year. I just wouldn't stop bothering them to come into the studio. And, and this was the days really still kind of before email, so I could call them up constantly and just bug them. And they finally said... If you, if we agree to come into the studio for three days and record a few songs, will you promise to stop bugging us? So I said, yes, of course I would. And I meant it. And they came in and they did five or six songs and they turned out so beautiful that I was able to easily convince them to come in for another weekend and do another five or six songs. And that turned into um, more sad hits which was sort of, we we took that from uh, a record that I have of um, er, very early Bollywood um, uh, 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 film, Bollywood film soundtracks. I had a CD. um, I I think it is a hits, early Bollywood hits more. And I think the subtitle was more sad hits. So we grabbed it from there. And then somehow or another, Damon got the rights to a Man Ray photograph for the cover. And that turned into their first record and that became Damon and Naomi and they've been making music ever since and I couldn't be happier. Yeah. But but my God, it was like pulling teeth. They just it was like asking them to to have their spleens removed. They absolutely were just so against it. 
Yes, I know. So he so did describe a lot of this is about. Yeah, it, it, a lot of it is about persistence. You know, if you really believe something needs to be done. Um, in those days, I was very much willing to sacrifice a friendship or have people get totally sick of me and refuse to talk to me in exchange for the possibility of getting them in the studio. And a lot of the early records I made were the same way. I spent many years not speaking to a lot of the people that I'd worked with in the early days because I knew how it had to be done and I didn't care whether or not they liked me or not when the record was done. <laughs> yes. So uh, I was confident enough, you know, not arrogant, I don't think, or, or, or perhaps I was in retrospect, I don't know. But to me, it was worth it. A lot of those records got made. I, I formed a band called Brainville with David Allen and Hugh Hopper and Pip Pyle. And Hugh, when, the, when that record was finished, Hugh stopped speaking to me and he never spoke to me again. He died and we never got to speak again. But that's a beautiful record. And I think he would have come around eventually. But yeah. boy, was he pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> well it is it is kind of one of those strange ones because obviously as a producer you you probably get times when somebody tries to tell you what they think and you're thinking no that really isn't going to work well if i'm positive that they're wrong then and i'm the producer and it's for my label then i'm sort of of the old ecm and uh Oh, what was that old label from New York that put out those early Fugs records? Now I can't remember the name. of the, um, It'll come to me in a few moments, I'm sure. But yeah, if I was running the label and producing the record and, and someone was just wrong, then I would say, well, I'm sorry, but this is my decision and I'm making the record and this is the way this is going to be and I hope you come around someday. And usually everybody really did come around, and I mean everybody. Yes, um, well, it's true because... Uh... Because he mentioned that actually they, a few years ago, put out that album, The Wondrous World of Damon and I. Oh, did he tell you the story about how how I told them that they were so wrong with what they did with the songs? <laughs> did he tell you that story? <laughs> he told he told me the story and he, he did sort of, you know, he did admit that they were wrong, that you were right in the end. And um, Well, you were yeah. right all the time, but he, he sort of, I think, just felt a bit embarrassed by it because when they played it, and then they released it. Obviously, he said, "Oh yeah, that was that was a win." And then he told me the story of when he picked up the master tapes as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's telling the story. Huh? Well, that's great. Yeah, you know, uh, I can't say that. Is this going to be on on radio? Yes, it, it is. Oh, geez, I don't know how much I should talk about this, but you, if you read Dean Wareham's book, you might have gleaned that um, this was part of why Galaxy. 500 fell apart you know um they were a three-person band and damon and naomi were two of the three and they always voted together and um the the power that they wielded at the end was responsible for some decisions that i think made their third record this is our music far weaker than it could have been and uh i think dean was just done with all that i don't know yes. you'd have you'd have to ask him but um yeah, you know, you, you can't be right all the time, and no. I'm I'm certainly not right all the time, but when it comes to music in my ears, I've always had this terrible curse of knowing what I'm hearing, and that's why it doesn't take me long to make records, you know, I've, I just, I, I, I don't need to, I don't need to drink a whole glass of water, to, uh, a whole glass of milk to know that it's sour, 
You know what I mean? I can hear something and know, okay, that's wrong or okay, that's right. And one of the problems that musicians have when they're listening to recordings that they've just made, and I mean just made like five minutes ago, you know, they come in the studio and they go, oh, that's wrong. And if it's wrong, I know it's wrong and I'll agree to it. But if it's something special, something that I've never heard before and something that I think has never been made before, like a chord that's, that's just off, but is it wrong? It's not what you intended, but is it wrong? And they're like, well, that's not what I wanted to play. Let me do it again. Well, wait a second now. Listen carefully to this. This is extraordinary. And of course, that doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen a good deal of the time. And that's the toughest thing really about producing independent artists. Very often they, they'll overplan things and they, they can't hear when they've done something extraordinary because it's not what they've planned. And I've always worked with, um, you know, one of Eno's dictums were honor your mistakes as though they were hidden intentions. I think Eno's contention was that there are many layers of consciousness and the most creative layers are the most buried. They're the, they're the deepest layers. They're way, way, way down. And sometimes a mistake or something that you call a mistake is actually one of those sub layers of consciousness and creativity that's trying to force its way out. And you have to give those kind of things a chance. Now, if you play a bum note, everybody's going to agree that's a bum note. But sometimes the wrong note or something that you consider to be a mistake, you've got to give that a second chance and listen to it again and go, oh, wow, that's kind of extraordinary. I didn't plan that. Wow. And the best records I've made have been with people who are open to those kinds of possibilities. The best things that happen in recording studios are always the mistakes. And I don't mean the, the bad ones that you have to erase, which are obvious to everybody, but the things that aren't planned. Those are the extraordinary things that, the things that are unlike anything anyone's ever heard before. Mm. And, and um, like a film director who's really a, a, a purveyor of mistakes on the set, the best directors are the ones who know when something that wasn't quite right is wonderful and perfect and the world has to see it. It's the same thing, I think, with the best record producers. You, you, the, these are the guys who can hear extraordinary things that the artists themselves can't hear, you know? Yeah. And Albini makes records in a very, very different way. He's an, he, he himself, he, he refuses to say that he's, an, he's a producer. But of course he is because he's running the recording session. But he feels that he's an engineer and that his job is to record what the band does but believe me if he hears something extraordinary he will try to get the band to listen again if they want to just do another take if they think they can do it better you know he he's very helpful with getting the band to hear yes and also just uh, just what a they've more... done is extraordinary even if they can't realize it yes and just a couple more uh, just two little points that i'd love to just mention or ask is that your work hopefully with pen and teller because obviously, you know, we're big fans of Penatello and even seen them, you know, gone to America and seen them live. I mean, was that a exciting, enjoyable collaboration? And um... yeah, from from beginning to end, in a sense, I wish I was still working with them, but they moved to Las Vegas, and I need to live near the ocean. But I would be happy to still work with him. Uh, my tell, uh, I'm close with Teller, but Pen is really one of my. I guess he's one of my two best friends, really, and we're in touch constantly. And 
Um, my the two records that I made with him, I'm very proud of, particularly the first one. I don't know if you, I don't know if you have that, do you? I had a band with him called the Captain Howdy, and we made a record called Money Feeds My Music Machine. Nice. Oh. Uh, yeah, which has a song on it called Tattoo of Blood that Lou Reed wrote specifically for us. Oh, I'll check that out. I'll track yeah. that down. And the other, the other, the other work that you do is with somebody else that we've all really liked in this country is the James Randi as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just saw him last weekend. He's eighty-nine years old and he's going strong. And uh, again, what was that like working with such a sort of incredible mind and legend? Well, you know, being next to him five days a week at the James Randi Educational Foundation was. Uh, uh, you know, it's you know, this is like being next to Carl Sagan or any of, or, or you know, Dawkins. He was a bit of a problem, of course. I don't think I could be in the same room with him for more than a, a week and not go insane and quit. But working with Randy was wonderful. But there was a point at which I knew that I wasn't cut out for this kind of work. I, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you a great a James Randi story that happened right toward the end of my three years working with him. Um, he had a prize called the um, Million Dollar Paranormal Challenge, which you may be aware of, in which he offered a million dollars to anyone who could demonstrate a psychic power under um, laboratory conditions. Yes. And it was my job at the James Randi Educational Foundation to open the dozens of letters that we'd get each day from people who were applying for the prize. And the prize rules were very simple. There were two points. Um, number one, tell us what you can do. And number two, tell us how you will demonstrate it. That's all we wanted. Two sentences from people. What do you do and how will you show us that you can do it? And we would get 20, 30, 40 page letters from people who were obviously in need of medication, you know, people saying they could blow multicolored fart bubbles out of their ass and change the colors as they rose up into the clouds and then and then make them move to the right as the clouds move to the left. Just really, really crazy stuff. But after three years of working there, we finally had a test plan. Somebody had actually followed the rules and stated what they could do and how they could do it. And we accepted their proposal. And this person flew in from, I think, Colorado to Florida to do the test. And we did the test. And of course, he couldn't demonstrate what he could do. And James Randi explained to this person how he had been fooled into thinking that he could do what he claimed to be able to do. And he explained to him the mechanism of his mind of why people believe things like this and why him believing this doesn't mean that he's stupid and it doesn't mean that he's gullible. It it just means that, like all humans, you're susceptible to believing things that make you feel good. And this is sort of the basis of religion. You know, you're not really going to die. You're going to sit next to God after you die. You're going to see all your loved ones. These kind of thoughts make people feel good. It's not rocket science. Very simple to understand. And the person who came in for the test was so understanding and so thankful and said, you know, I'm going to donate all of my money to the James Randi Educational Foundation in my will. You're, you're the greatest. I can't thank you for help. You've helped me so much. And I was so encouraged. I'd never seen anything like this before. And I felt, wow, my three years here, we have finally actually educated someone and helped someone. Because 
what the James Randi Educational Foundation really did was preach to the choir. You know, our followers were people who believed in Randi and didn't believe in any nonsense. And I, I just never saw much of us educating people or bringing people back from the brink of wearing crystals around their neck instead of going to chemotherapy. You know, we, we had never really turned anybody around. We weren't educating people. We were really just preaching to the choir. And here was a person who had left the building saying, you've changed my life. You're the greatest. Thank you so much. And I was just bursting with joy. And we closed the door and watched the person through the window walking to his car and driveway. And then Randy turned and he walked toward his office. And I said, Randy, wasn't that great? And he didn't answer me. He kept walking. And I said, Randy. And he didn't answer me. He kept walking. And I yelled, Randy. And he stopped and turned around and said, what? And I said, Randy, we just, I've been here three years. And this is the first person whose life I think we've actually altered for the better. And he looked at me and he said, Five or six days a week, maybe two weeks at the most, we'll get a letter from him in the mail telling us why he failed the test and going back on everything he just said. And I just looked at him and he looked at me and he said, trust me. And he turned around, walked into his office and closed the door. Two days later, we got a letter via FedEx. James Randi is the greatest black magician on the planet. He blocked my powers. I can still do what I said I can do. I want to reapply for the test. Oh, that was quite a moment, wasn't it? A couple of weeks later, I went into Randy and I said, you know, um, I'm going to go back to music. <laughs> oh. And he said, I understand. And we hugged and I see him like once a month or so. We have dinner together and talk shit about uh, the old days, the good old days. <laughs> so it, it's the reason there's only one James Randi on the planet, or maybe two or three, is because you have to be able to put up with that kind of thing. Yes. You know, you have to realize that in the long run, you know, you're not really going to change the world. But you just have to and, keep on trying. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's the very rare person who can keep that up for 70 years like Randy has. And uh, God bless him, right? And is he still with his partner? Yeah, he's still with Davey. I, yeah, they're, they're inseparable. Oh, that's great. Because there was that weird, you know, I don't know if you had the same film documentary where... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can't travel the world because he doesn't really have a passport, but uh, he gets around Florida and the United States pretty good. And uh, they will be together until death parts them. Yes. And what would you what would you say? I mean, obviously, you've had an amazing amount of experience with, you know, record labels and obviously loads of musicians. So, you know, the wealth of knowledge and experience you've had is incredible. What would you sort of if you met your 18 year old self just starting out in music, what, what advice would you give them? Myself, my own 18 year old self. Yeah. You know, if you stay of... in film, stay in film school and make those movies that you've always wanted to make and don't don't give up. Don't give up. Don't do music just because it's easier and you can do it and you know what you're doing. Stick with the film thing. It's what you really want to do. Don't give up. That's what I would tell myself at 18 years old. If you're talking about what kind of advice I would give to others in my position, but not exactly myself, mm. just do what you're really, really passionate about. And just because something is easy 
and you can do it, you know, don't be lazy. My feeling about my past is that I, I, I gave up on film for the simple reason that in the days that I wanted to do film, you would need 30 or 40 people to make a movie, but all you really need to make a record is a tape machine and your collaborators, you know, you can make that happen very easily. And I did what was easy. And I um, surrendered my true passions um, for what was easier. And smoking a lot of pot helped, you know, that made it very easy. But um, if I was to run into myself, I would say, don't you dare give up on the idea of making films. Yeah. And that's where I am right now. To end the interview, I'm trying to figure out a way to get back into that. And that is the end of that interview chat. Anyway, a huge thank you to Mark Kramer, who I'm sure I refer to as Billy when I was listening back on him. I was confused. That's what happens when you get to a certain age. Anyway, a huge thanks to Kramer, Mark, for that. Um, if you want to contact me, I know I'm now sounding a little bit more desperate than normal, but you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show. And also, I've been doing this show for three years. You can find all them, all of them archived. And you can, uh, yes, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Mixcloud, the magic four. Anyway... I'll have to say goodbye. Thank you for listening, if you still are. This is going to be another track from that said album of um, covers. This is America. Have a great week.